Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. This is one of those types of scriptures that we're getting ready to get into that I have, I'm very glad that I am um, a little vertically challenged because when I read this, if some of you came armed, I can quickly duck behind a pretty stable block of wood. We're continuing into the instructions for the Christian who is living in a time that is hostile to the Christian message. And part of that that the Apostle Peter is about ready to tell us about is what we need to do is that we need to live within the society in which we've called to live. We have to, we have to minister by providing a godly example. Being in the world, but not being of the world. In the book of Genesis, immediately after the fall, God looks at Eve and he gives her this warning. Your desire will be for your husband. And that was not a matter of physical desire. That was not a, a, a matter of emotional desire. That is a matter of a dynamic where the two in a marital union, in a fallen state, can be in a power struggle. Your desire will be to control over each other. Now, the Bible says that the family is supposed to be something different. In the cultural context of the day, we're talking Iron Age Israel, Iron Age Middle East, where the predominant influences were the Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire. Both of them engaged in a fierce struggle for dominance. And in that particular society, there was this very complementarian, man had these things assigned to him, women had these things assigned to them. But what Peter is trying to instruct here is that even though this is a fallen system, there is a way that you can give a godly example while living in it. We're going to take a look at that really quickly, and then we're going to take a look uh, farther into the way that the Bible holds the place of wives and the place of mothers, and the very high esteem it grants them. Now, for many of us, we've kind of swallowed hook, line, and sinker this this notion, this kind of medieval notion that either God hates women or God doesn't think a whole lot of them or He doesn't value them or that the Word of God teaches that they're some kind of second-class citizen. Now, the fallen cultures in which the Bible was preached in the day that Peter lived, that was true of that culture, but that's not true of the Word of God as we're about to see in just a second. There is a complementary relationship that the Bible does teach. And we need to look at the ethics underneath what the Scripture tells us. Not to avoid what the Scripture tells us, but to figure out what we can glean for our society in a way that we can still model Christ before others who simply do not want to hear it, who do not see a difference. The reason in most people's lives that people don't see a difference that Christ makes is that the people who claim to be Christian don't act like it. If you want an example of that, go to any restaurant immediately after the church lets out. How many of you have ever been a waitress or a waiter? How many of you have had to work on a Sunday and wished that you didn't? 
the importance of being Christian is to reflect his love and his example, not just when we're here in the church, but in every aspect of our life. So without further ado, let's take a look at how Peter is telling his readers how to model being a mother in a fallen society. We do have our places, each of us. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 1. When you get there in your copy of God's Word, say amen. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may what? Be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, part of what Peter is talking about here is not necessarily ladies behave like a punching bag. That's not what he is saying. His, his points that he's trying to make is this. One, model Christ in the, whatever culture you just happen to be living in. Remember, you are not a citizen of, of the kingdom of this world. You're a citizen of the kingdom of what? Heaven! Act like it. Number two, walk in kindness, gentleness, love. Model the virtue of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, patience, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's part of what Paul taught that Peter is also picking up on. Model the fruit of the Spirit before others and others will see Christ in you. Always model Christ's likeness for the sake of those you love. If you in this point in time happen to have been married to a non-Christian, by acting like Christ in front of that person in whatever situation you happen to find yourself, you're going to introduce him to Christ in your behavior in your conduct, your conversation, in your character, and gradually by the love you demonstrate to them, you will demonstrate the fact that Christ makes a difference. In the fallen state where neither party in the marriage has the influence of the Holy Spirit working for them, both of them are are going to try to rule, are going to try to seize control, and are going to try not to love the other person, but to subjugate them. That's what Peter's trying to preach against. Love your husband. Love your wife. Paul would go on later to say, and guys, pick up on this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church for which he gave his life. The reason that Paul says, submit ye one to another is this. If you have that true, regenerate relationship, if you're both under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, there's not going to be that conflict because your love will conquer it all. If Christ reigns in your home, then he will settle any issue. Love will conquer all. Be mindful because your example may lead your family to Christ. How many of us are here because we had a Christian mother? Hands all around. I know of a a friend of mine over at St. Paul Missionary Baptist who has a bad habit of saying that, that he had a drug problem. His mom drug him to church every Sunday. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. In other words, don't put on a display that says, I'm proud. Such elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, rather it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. So do not display pride, display virtue. Do not worship yourself, worship God. Do not call attention to the outside which will fade. Let your beauty Be the person that you are from the heart. For this is the way that the holy women of the past put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him 
her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and you do not give way to fear. So one of the things that we can also pick up on in this passage is that life can get crazy, but put your faith in God. What is the antidote to fear? What is the antidote to being afraid? What is the antidote to anxiety? What is the antidote to anxiousness? Choose faith. God means what he says, and he says what he means. God has not, will never, has never broken a promise. And if you have been careful to be in the Word of God, to understand the promises that he has made to each and every one of you, what in the world do we have to be afraid of? If God be for us, then what? Who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, how will he not give us all things? What do we have to be afraid of? Fear is a mild form of atheism. Either we believe in God or we don't. It's as simple as that. And if God has declared it, it will be so. Choose faith, not fear. Be strong and courageous. Ladies, that's as true for you as anybody. Be strong and courageous in all things. Peter is talking about living in this pagan society about avoiding the power dynamic which will destroy a home. Avoiding the fallenness, which means that you and your husbands have to be at each other's throats. I remember in one case, a very unfortunate case that involved a family that I know from southeastern Kentucky. The husband had received some great news. He was a well-respected person in his community, known for being a generous person, known for being a compassionate person, known for being an extremely humble-hearted person. Loving to a fault, demonstrating kindness by his behavior. Not one to be proud, but one who was always jolly, always kind-hearted. He was given the honor of becoming a deacon in his local church. Now something you need to know about a deacon in a Southern Baptist Convention church. A deacon in a Southern Baptist Convention church is a part of lay clergy. They have a form of ordination. If you become a deacon, it is not simply because someone puts you in charge of a ministry and you get elected to that office as part of the church. In that particular convention, you get hauled in front of the members of the entire association and you get put on the stage the same way that any prospective preacher would. And every pastor and every deacon in that association gets to grill you like a fish. They They ask you doctrinal questions. They ask you personal questions. They ask you all kinds of things to validate that you are and you believe the way that this church believes. And then the church itself votes after presumably you have survived that that intense grilling. But his church believed that he had what it took and they put him forward for ordination as a deacon. And in front of his children, his wife giggled and said, I'm sorry, I thought you had to be the head of your household first. What Peter is trying to rail against is a power disparity. Not born on love, but born out of a desire to control. Submit ye one to another. The husband is supposed to be the spiritual head of the household. The women in ancient Israel were seen also as the prophetic voice for the marriage. There was a dual competency. Not that one is valued over the other, not that one is greater than the other, but that all work together. And through love, they are a family. Let's take a look and let's see how the family of God describes itself. In your Bible, turn to Proverbs 31. Let's learn this together. This is during the reign of Solomon. Solomon, the wise king of Israel. If anybody knew anything about trying to hold a marriage together, it was Solomon because he had to juggle a thousand of them. I'm not kidding. He had his issues, one might say. 
But the place of the mother in the household was very revered. Let's learn a little bit about it together. A wife of noble character, who can find? For she is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. In other words, she's providing for her family. She gets up while it is still night, and she provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. So even the people in her community that other cultures of the day look down upon, she is generous towards, is what she's saying. What he's saying, excuse me. She considers a field and buys it. Now, we have a really bad habit of trying to read the Scripture through Western eyes. We look at the Bible the way that we would look at our ancestors back in medieval England, Scotland, and so forth. She considers a field and buys it. Women in ancient Israel, in the Bronze Age of Israel, back in the time of the Mosaic Law, had a great deal of power and influence. She considers a field and buys it. In other words, she has the ability to make giant purchases in terms of real estate. This is unheard of for the Bronze Age of the Middle East. And yet this is how Solomon the Wise is describing a wife of noble character, not someone above her station, as, as we have a really bad habit of saying, but someone will within her rights who is exhibiting a cunning business sense. Someone who is a manager within her home. She considers a field and buys it out of her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grabs the spindle with her fingers. In other words, she knows how to sew, just in case some of you don't know what a distaff is. I know I had to look it up. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed, and she herself is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her, her children arise and call her blessed. And her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gates. So in, in this culture that we're talking, again, we're talking about Bronze Age Israel here. We're talking the time before Rome. We're talking about the time before the divided kingdom, before the idolatry, before the things from the outside settled into the land. We're talking about the time when the law of Moses was in place. So what can we glean from this? The woman is the core, the heart of the family unit. And she does have this complementary authority alongside her husband in this culture. She is a manager of the household economics. She is actually the seat of honor within her family. That's what Solomon means when he writes down that her husband is praised at the city gates. Why? Because she is an example to them. She is a provider from within the home. She is the nurturer for her children and also their primary care instructor. Wisdom are on her lips and in her teaching. 
she is considered to have the prophetic uh, office of the home. The husband is considered the priest of his home. Who does God call on to tell the priest that he's being an idiot? The prophet. Husbands, remember, your day is coming soon. So she is not only someone, even though she doesn't have in this culture a, 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 a rabbinical type of office, within the home she is very much kind of at the forefront of making sure that the people of God stay acting like the people of God. Her duties at that point in time were to prudently manage the finances. And again, she considers a field and buys it. That's extremely unique for this culture. She instructs the young children in righteousness. She's not only their first teacher, she's their first Sunday school teacher. It was her job to teach them to read and write at an elementary level and then to instruct them on the basics of their relationship with God, to model that. The husband was then supposed to take it a step further and teach them the covenantal law later on when they were able to understand and grasp such things. I remember the story of John and, uh, um, yeah, John and Susanna Wesley. John Wesley, the great Methodist from the Second Great Awakening, his first, and in, in his own words, his greatest instructor of theology was Susanna, his mom. How many of us have that kind of a godly person in our lives, that mom who was the one who told us the, the Ten Commandments, who taught us what righteousness means, who loved us when we were not lovable, and who was the model for grace? Her duty is also to budget for hospitality and for charity, to make sure that no one in her household went without, and these were extensive households, to treat the poor with kindness, to ensure the prosperity of the family from within the home, and to ensure the integrity of the family in public. Now, what can we glean from all of this in the culture that we live in today? If we take what Peter says about being Christ-like in the society that you find yourselves being an alien, and if we take what Solomon writes down as a woman of great value, what ethics can we derive from them? First, the mother is the source of unity within the home. It's her love that basically binds everybody together when they can tear each other apart. She shares the responsibilities of the family. That's, that's one of the things that we need to, to understand within ourselves. Guys, your wife isn't responsible for the entirety of your household. It's a shared responsibility. She is to provide without sacrificing her family. This, I think, is the worst bane of our existence in this culture that we live in right now. Because in this culture, in this climate in which we live, there is no such thing anymore as a stay-at-home parent, or at least it's become, it's fading away because it's economically impossible without starving your kids to death. But we can take this from it. Just as we need to share responsibility for the family within the family, we also cannot sacrifice our careers. We cannot, excuse me, we cannot sacrifice our children for the sake of our careers. We cannot put our children on the altar of the bank account. If we have kids, we have to strive and pray and work to find a balance between what we do outside the home and making sure that we have time with each other inside the home. Amen? So we have to provide without sacrificing the very family that we're providing for. And we need to nurture them both physically and spiritually. Don't have your kids in so many things 
that they don't have time to participate in the house of God. Make sure that they have a spiritual balance. Make sure that they have godly instruction. Make sure that they have Christian friends. Make sure that they are coming to church. Make sure they are part of the family of God. Make sure that you model that for them now so that that, that when the time comes, they don't depart from it. One of the things, (coughs) baby boomers, I'm afraid I'm going to have to pick on you for a second. Your generation, not you specifically, because you showed up for church. But anymore, you see this giant plaster on, uh, this, this, this teaching that if your parents think that church attendance is optional, to the children it will be irrelevant. Let me say that again and write it down. In a household where the parents believe that church attendance is optional, to the children of those ha- that household, church attendance will become irrelevant. I'm sorry, but Sunday school is more important than soccer. The Word of God is more important. Your child's soul and their eternal destiny is far and away more important than extracurricular activities. And we have enough sway and we have enough numbers that we really need to pressure our coaches, our band directors, our sponsors of these activities to give us Sundays and Wednesdays back. The church needs to meet, rebuking not the gathering of yourselves together. As some of, these are the words of the brother of Christ. Rebuking not the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more so as you see the day of the Lord approaching. And people, I don't care what you believe about the book of Revelation, it's closer today than it was yesterday. Meaning that we should be coming together as the family of God more often, not less. That's the word of God this morning. Also, to display display Christ-likeness before others. As the old saying goes, proclaim the word often, and when necessary, use words. Meaning you don't just show Christ in how you pontificate from behind the pulpit. How you live your life in front of others, just as Peter is saying, in your gentleness, in your kindness, in your lovingness, in your forgiving nature, that's how you win others to Christ. By showing them that Christ himself makes a difference living in you. Display him before others. Correct in wisdom and also with gentleness. Provoke not your children to wrath. Don't hesitate to correct, but don't provoke them to wrath. Let Christ be part of the way that you parent. And lastly, live in all cases, live by faith, not by fear. We have a world right now that we live in that wants to take our peace away from us. It wants to take our joy away from us. Because if it takes our peace and our joy, then we become paralyzed. Without our peace and our joy, we do not move. We do not become the hands and feet of Christ. We become hands that are idle. We become feet that are stagnant. Christ has given you by right a peace that passes all understanding and a joy that is unquenchable. If the world can can somehow distract you from those that are yours by right, then it can make you as a believer paralyzed. Because the enemy knows that if you've got that joy in your heart, if you have that peace of mind, that there is nothing that he can put in front of you that can stop you. If you go forth in his name, Romans 8 gives us clear direction that all things work together for the glory of God and the good of those that are called according to his purpose, that no one will condemn you because only God can condemn and he's certainly not going to do us because he gave us the blood of Christ. Nothing is going to take you away from God if you simply live in the confidence that He gives you. Hold on to that peace. Hold on to that joy. Fight with it. That in tandem with the Holy Word of God and the Holy Spirit living within you, 
Those are your resources. Those are your weapons. Use them. And make a difference in the lives of the people that you love. Above all this, display love. The same love that Christ gives you to your entire family. Love your husbands. Love your children. And model that very challenging, agape, self-sacrificing love before others. And watch it catch light in the hearts of others like a spreading flame. These are the words of a woman who was instructed by an angel that she was about to become a mother. Now again, in the culture of her day, she was not yet married. In the culture of her day, an engagement, which she was engaged, an engagement was a legally binding contract. You had to have a divorce proceedings. And if you had a divorce proceedings for marital infidelity, you were instantly guilty of a capital crime, meaning your punishment, the only punishment available was what? Death. So as an angel comes to a woman, probably 13 or 14 years of age, and tells her that she is about to conceive, that she is about to bring forth a son, that she hasn't known her husband yet, that she's not yet married. She knows the consequences. She knows the names that she's going to be called. She knows that the pain of death that's going to be hanging over her head for the rest of her life. She knows the threat that Joseph might leave her for this. This is what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud of their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants, just as he promised our ancestors. When the angel tells her what's about to happen, knowing the consequence, the threat to her life, the threat to her relationship, the threat to everybody that she knows and loves in her family and what they're going to think of her, she doesn't choose fear. She chooses faith. She doesn't choose to abandon God. She chooses to be humble before God. She doesn't choose to spurn the child she is carrying. She chooses to love Him unconditionally. In that moment when she could have said anything, in that moment when she could have looked at the angel and pleaded and begged, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Husbands, Children, remember in your heart the love of your mother. Remember and celebrate in your heart the person who took care of you, who comforted you, who was your first instructor in the things of God, your first demonstration of a godly embrace. Don't just tell her you love her on this day once a year. I challenge you. Tell her you love her every day you can. Think to her example and learn from it. The good and the bad. But in all things, 
Thank God for your mother. Thank God for putting her in your life. And all God's people said. And Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Those women of the faith that you've given to us. Lord, those who we hold in such great esteem today, but whom we carry in our hearts always. Lord, we thank you for the hands that healed, the hands that corrected, the voices that inspired, and the hearts that loved. May we continue to be an echo of godly mothers and keep that heritage alive. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.